9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to another special edition of our weekly podcast, Ask the Blob. You can see how I could screw that up there because it's confusing, but... uh, Uh, The idea here is that we get together people who are uh, Washington, D.C. insiders, and we let our members pose questions, those of you who have been uh, good enough to join us in the webinar room for this, and then, of course, we share that out with the universe. Um, The way it works, though, is that if you have a question for either of our guests today, what you do is you go to the Q&A tab on the uh, Zoom page, and you put in the question, and I will fold in the question into our conversation uh, in a seamless way. You'll really marvel at how uh, easily I do that, Uh, sometimes uh, just reading it directly. Um, And, uh, and, uh, you know, we will go uh, at this and you can ask multiple questions. All you have to do is go to the Q&A section. Don't put it in the chat section. Don't hit the raise your hand button. Just put it in the Q&A section. Um, In any event, we're really, really glad to have two people who have been great contributors, not only to uh, our podcast, but to the public uh, discourse over the past several months, really uh, people who I think are um, the best kinds of, of public servants and 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 kind of actually heroic. Uh, we're joined today by Elizabeth Newman, who is a director at the Republican Accountability Project. She served in the Trump administration as Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff for the Department of Homeland Security, and as the DHS Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention, and by Olivia Troy, who is also a director at the Republican Accountability Project. Olivia served in the Trump administration as Vice President Pence's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor, as well as his lead staffer on the House Coronavirus Task Force. a lot has happened since the last time we spoke, and I, we spoke fairly recently. Um, and uh, I just want to hit you with a couple of news items and get your reaction to the news items, and then we'll open it up. Again, I encourage people who are in the audience who have questions to go to the Q&A tab and just post those questions, and I'll get to them. Elizabeth, uh, we finally have an attorney general. Uh, today, uh, Merrick Garland was approved by a vote of 70 to 30, which uh, is, you know, given the modern politics, a fairly strong showing, 20 Republicans um, uh, stepping up to vote for him, including Mitch McConnell. Uh, personally, I had a sense that on some of the more sensitive areas of public policy regarding, including some issues about um, counterterrorism in the sense of domestic terrorism and the insurrection, uh, the Biden administration has kept a low profile to wait for Merrick Garland to get approved. Do you think that his approval now will usher in a new era? Certainly hope so. Um, I I tend to try to give 
the Biden team a lot of grease. They walked into so many fires. Like there were, you know, in talking to people that are still serving or came in to serve, you know, there were a lot of things that the former team left behind, um, kind of ticking time bombs. And so there's a lot of stuff that we're not seeing in the public that they're having to deal with to try to just right the ship, let alone then turn the ship to the right direction. I mean, it was, it's like the ship was sinking and they're just trying to stop taking on water. Now they're bailing out the water and then eventually they'll get it moved and turned to the right direction and moving forward. Um, I, I feel like they're in step two of that process. At the same time, knowing that, I feel a sense of um, slight angst that they are slow in some of their appointments. You know, I have a deputy secretary of Homeland Security nominated yet. Most of the um, uh, sub, you know, uh, agency level appointments have not been announced yet. And it just eh, makes me a little uncomfortable. I'd, I'd like to see them pick up the speed on that because some of these problems like uh, the, the immigration challenge at the border or um, how are we going to address domestic terrorism, um, the, the, they're they're not going to wait. Um, they've been lurking and looming and building for four years and, and there's just not that much time to waste. So I'm relieved that he's now confirmed and he can get started. And I really hope that that means we'll start to see um, some substantive changes occurring, especially in the domestic terrorism space. I'll circle back on a couple of those things. But before I go to Olivia, I, I feel compelled to ask, when you say they left behind, you know, uh, little problems. What do you mean? I mean, my sense is that there um, are probably things that I, my impression is that they're in the classified space because of the way that the people are talking about them. But um, so you're probably talking more of the foreign threat challenge space, um, but just things that were orchestrated before they left that uh, are requiring a lot of cleanup. Um, I mean, maybe a, a better example would be what the COVID team came in to see. You know, they thought, you know, hey, the transition team's just holding out on us. They're not telling us all the details. They get in, they realize there's just nothing there. I mean, there's, you know, limited plan for distribution, but there was not the full scale work that they expected. Uh, and so they're kind of starting from behind where they thought they'd be starting. And um, that, that takes a lot of work to, to kind of dig out of that, that hole it sounds like they're having that kind of experience on a whole host of places, not just COVID. So you mean like Richard Grinnell left little metaphorical Jack in the boxes on people's desks and <laughs> they, <laughs> that very well could be, I can imagine. Can you see that happening? <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I have, I have in my career very seldom encountered anybody quite as petty as Richard Grinnell. So it's not impossible. Um, Olivia, um, you know, you were uh, uh, on the, the COVID task force for the vice president. Today, we have the um, first big piece of legislation from this administration. Um, and it's a big piece of legislation, and maybe in, in, in and of itself, the biggest piece of legislation that's ever been done in terms of, you know, some of the programs involved. Uh, a lot of it focuses on either COVID uh, relief or uh, economic relief associated with the COVID downturn. At the same time, um, President uh, Biden has announced 
they're going to have another 100 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which Johnson & Johnson are working together with Merck on, and they just did a press conference on that. And the president also said tomorrow night he's going to give an address about the next phase of this. Um, I don't know. You know, I, 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 it looks to me, uh, I saw a chart on, on, on the level of vaccinations. Uh, I saw a piece in the FT that showed that the United States may grow faster than expected in the fourth quarter of this year. Um, and, and the recovery numbers look pretty robust. So far, looks like it's going pretty well. Um, you were in the other team. I'm just wondering how it looked to you. Well, I think that this is what happens when you have a president in office who actually cares about solving the pandemic and the problem. And I think, you know, I give Biden a lot of credit for moving us forward on this issue because it is something that has been, people have been struggling with for so long, right? Where there's been a lot of a loss, a lot of suffering. People have been hurting financially in households. It's just, um, you know, a year later, I feel like we're just finally starting to see some sunlight through the clouds, um, so to speak. And so, you know, I think he's doing well. It's, it is a massive piece of legislation. Um, and I can, you know, I can see uh, why some people has, had hesitation, but to me, having worked on COVID early on in this pandemic, uh, we knew that this was going to be devastating and to have someone in the White House actually care about getting the vaccines out and getting more vaccine supply and getting it distributed and really focusing on things that are going to give us tools to actually move forward economically. I think that's critical. Um, you know, I was thinking about that and reflecting on it today. My mom got her second COVID dose, uh, her second dose for the COVID vaccine. And I cried um, because I thought back to a year ago where the night before Tucker Carlson you know, on March 9th was calling it another hoax and he kicks that off. And I think about all the messed ups along the way, right? I was thinking about the cruise ship that finally had docked in Oakland on March 9th of last year and how much work that was to get that ship docked only to, you know, get reprimanded by the person sitting in the Oval Office for the number of cases that would rise because the Americans were going to get off the ship. And these were Americans that I was working day and night to get off that boat because I wanted them to live. <laughs> and so when I think about the dichotomy between those two pictures of who Trump was and one of the biggest pandemics of our generation and who Biden is now, I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to obviously side with Biden and I'm, I'm thanking God that it's Biden in the in office now. Um, yeah, I, I noticed uh, yesterday, we we passed 527,000 total deaths in the past year from this. Um, and I could, I mean, I guess, you know, I, it's a, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I think all of us who were around 20 years ago couldn't help but think about the fact that last, yesterday we passed this, uh, this number of 525,600, and if you want, no rent, you know, the musical Rent, there's a song in it, which says 525,600 minutes in each year. And that meant that one person died every minute 
in the past year. Um, one person died of this. Nothing a year ago could have prepared you for a death toll greater than U.S. losses in World War One and World War Two, and you know Korea and Vietnam and the Gulf and and the you know the more recent wars or you know th that vastly outstrips the AIDS epidemic or anything that we've seen. And then if you take the total number, it outstrips um, probably because we're probably this, the official number is probably thirty percent below the total. Um, it, it it probably outstrips what happened in nineteen eighteen. In one in one year, um, Elizabeth, you 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 know you focus on uh, or you have focused on the counterterrorism side, and uh, you know we've had four years where the president was kind of egging on extremists, um, and their motivation was to support the president's agenda, President Trump's agenda, and also to give voice to their grievances. We're now going to enter a somewhat different environment. Um, they're going to start getting prosecuted for what happened on the, on the Hill. Um, and uh, I, I just wonder how you think that is likely to affect those groups, those extremist groups. Does, do you think it's going to make them a greater threat um, you know, with this new agenda of their own closer to home grievances? I think there, there's good and there's bad. The, the good is it, the more that um, we talk about it, describe it, if we do it well, it has the potential to prevent uh, people that might be what we would consider vulnerable from being radicalized or recruited into those movements. I, one of the frustrating parts of the last four years is by not having the leader of your government define the threat. Um, and, and actually, he, he did the opposite, right? He deflected. He said, Antifa is this boogeyman, you know, terrorist group. That's who we need to worry about. And if you still to this day, post-January 6th, take polls, there is a substantial a uh, portion of our country that, you know, and probably in the 40 to 45% range that think that Antifa is our biggest threat, despite what the data shows, despite what January 6th shows. Well, despite the and fact that, that Antifa is not actually an organization. And that, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so the, that, uh, that disinformation campaign that the president um, uh, launched for probably for no other reason than, you know, it, it, he thought it was a good campaign tactic. Um, it, it, it now has this resonance of, of, we have to educate our, the public about what, what we're working on, about what the, the threat is. And in particular, um, although the, the demographically, the people that showed up on January 6th tended to be much older than what we normally are concerned about in terms of the makeup of what an extremist looks like, looks, uh, I, I am still concerned and other experts are concerned that um, with the number of children that uh, teenagers, uh, college students that are spending an inordinate amount of time online because of the pandemic um, and 
the, the, the nature of the polarized conversations we have ongoing, it, it is very easy to um, potentially recruit those, you know, 15 to 25 year olds into these white supremacist movements. Um, and and the, the anti-government militia movements tend to be a little bit older in age. But the point is that we've, because we haven't talked about it, because we're not explaining to moms like, hey, they're using gaming systems. Uh, they're using cooking videos. My daughter, who is seven, loves to just click on whatever Alexa pops up that day that's a random cooking video. And when she's a little older, she'll figure out how to do YouTube because I can't keep eyes on her at every single moment of the day. And she could stumble upon some of these cooking videos that start off somewhat innocuously as just a random cooking video. And then it's weaving in grievance. It's weaving in commentary that leads you down a, a trail of white supremacist thought. And we need to educate the, the country that that's what's happening. It's not usually in your face blatant racism. It's, it's very much a recruitment style, uh, feed, figuring out what your particular vulnerability is, what your particular grievance set is, and then giving you a sense of belonging and inviting you in. And it's only later that you find out that you're a part of something darker. And they, that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody that's become radicalized will turn to violence, but some percentage of them will. So my concern with four years of not talking about the threat is we've just let our, our, our especially the younger members of our society become more, uh, more susceptible to that recruitment. Um, certainly Trump helped with that recruitment by, you know, patting the Proud Boys on the back and, um, and allowing militias to provide security for uh, campaign rallies. Like that just, it, it made it mainstream in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. So we have a, a pretty big problem on our hands when you bring prosecutions to the table and you start having the law applied and people start to hear messages like, hey, there is no such thing as a legal private militia. If you are conducting law enforcement activities as a militia, it is illegal in all 50 states. If we can get every state to actually enforce their law, that would be even better. But it starts to change the nature of the conversation. It educates the public in a way that we weren't able to do the last four years. The downside to this is that you still have voices like the Tucker Carlson's and the Laura Ingram's of the world who are taking the conversation about concerns about infiltration of the military and law enforcement, uh, concerns that um, you know we do seem to have uh, a problem on the right far fringe right that um, is, is motivated towards violence, they take those conversations and they pervert them. And they, they say things like, I've never seen a white supremacist. I searched for QAnon on Google and I couldn't find them. I couldn't find their website. So they must not exist. They make fun of it. And then they also lay seeds of more grievance where they say, hey, they're gonna make it uh, illegal for you to be a Republican in the military. And that's just wrong. They shouldn't take away your right to, you know, be a conservative. None of that is true, but that's the nature of the grievance that you're hearing from those very prominent conservative uh, Inc. voices on Fox News. So anytime we start to address the threat, you have these um, counter voices that make it really complex. If you're by, if the Biden team if you are the Biden team trying to figure out how to tackle this, 
you've got to figure out how to do it in such a way that you don't accidentally um, or play, uh, maybe they don't do it, but you don't play into the hands of the Tucker Carlson's and the Laura Ingram's who are exploiting it, not for the purpose of they want more people radicalized. They're just trying to make money. Um, but in, in the process of them trying to make money, they are in fact radicalizing people and that we've got to figure out how to break that cycle. Well, that's a good question. And it, it leads to one of the questions from one of the people in the audience here. Uh, and by the way, if you've got a question, post it up in the Q and a section, but um, the, the question is, Olivia, how can we get the senior Republican leadership or any senior Republican leadership or anybody that the Republicans are listening to, to help educate people in the party who are in Elizabeth's 45%? In other words, what, you know, what can we do? I mean, you, you guys are talking about the Republican Accountability Project, but, but part of what we've got, we've got to do is we've got to get through to those people who believe stuff that's dangerous, nonsense. How, how do we do it? Well, therein lies a conundrum, I think, too, right? Because I think we have, uh, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene still in office, and we have the Josh Hawley still in office, and they're continuing to double down on things that led to the events on January 6th, right? They're still doubling down on uh, voter fraud and they they twist these narratives to fit their their own narratives right and and these narratives can be spun like elizabeth said in in all these different ways but unfortunately these narratives are also leading to great division in our communities and they're leading to this more division of extremism and and hate and divisiveness i would say um that is happening on a fundamental level and so get i think you know Calling these leaders out, I think is, is important for communities to call them out on it, for, for in, including especially, I would say, Republican voters and voting constituencies within these communities that these people represent and, and calling them out on their actions and what they're saying if they're not okay with it. And I'm willing to bet that the majority of a lot of these communities, like parents and, and community leaders are concerned about what's happening here in our country, and certainly moderate Republicans are. And I think those are the voices that really need to be speaking out, speaking up and calling upon these elected officials to either one, come forward and address these concerns and stop pushing these false narratives that are leading us down a very dangerous path or calling, you know, like we did, <laughs> we called for their resignation because we think that they're unfit for office, right? The Ted Cruz's of the world, the Josh Hawley's like, uh, you know, fundamentally, they may, you know, it's all, it's all politics and games for them, right? It's rhetoric. It's, it's the brand of MAGA and Trumpism that they want to carry forward. But fundamentally, it's more than that. It's about where we are as a country. It's about our national security. Um, you know, uh, it, Elizabeth, as, as I think about it, one of the central problems here is disinformation. And in terms of disinformation, if we have Russian disinformation, um, we can try to block it. We can actually, you know, launch public campaign and say the Russians are doing this and you shouldn't listen to it. But if it's Americans who are doing the disinformation, we get into a perilous area uh, in terms of free speech. Um, and yet, 
the disinformation can be seditious. The disinformation can be dangerous. The disinformation can foment violence. What can we do about it? What, what kind of counter disinformation is legal when the source of disinformation is domestic? And this is significant because when we went into the 2020 election, there are a lot of people talking informed by 2016 that we got to watch out for disinformation in 2020. And it turned out the Russians, although they did their thing, were not the main source of it. The main source in 2020 was domestic disinformation. Right. And, you know, even if um, if it, the source is Russian, one, one of the things the government found is that because uh, public trust of the government is so low, it, it doesn't matter if you had a uh, a credible spokesperson in the government um, alerting the public that there was this disinformation, it likely wouldn't have that strong of an impact. What we've learned is that you need to find credible voices from within the communities that are being impacted by the disinformation. So uh, the, the cybersecurity agency that Chris Krebs ran, um, they were working on an, a number of, of efforts uh, to try to be prepared for election 2020. Um, and one of the things they were doing was partnering with, um, so where government can come in, government can provide funds to help those credible voices who might not necessarily be in a position to try to do something like this for a public good, public service, but you, you try to educate those credible voices in advance. Um, and then when you see the information coming in and it's um, in the case of 2020, you're right, it was less Russia and more domestic, but we did see domestic disinformation get picked up by uh, foreign uh, adversaries who amplified it and made it more uh, sticky than when it was on its own. Um, so there were still ways in which they could alert those credible voices and hope that those credible voices could help educate their communities. I think that was a nascent um, effort. I it clearly did not overcome the level of disinformation that we had in 2020. I think some of what needs to happen, and especially as it pertains to elections, is uh, probably in the area of legislation on electoral reform uh, that um, is in some ways broader than just uh, the way we think of disinformation. Um, but in order for us to have a functioning democracy, the, the voters have to be able to be to receive fact-based information. Um, and you know, the, the media outlets did a phenomenal job. It's not like you don't have fact checkers, it's not like you don't have uh, various versions of fact checkers telling you, um, you know, the the nuanced why this is partially true but not fully true. Um, it's just that the other factor here is the polarization and the tribalization. You have one uh, set of news uh, uh, echo chamber over on the right, and then another set that I would say for the center and the, the left. Um, and that discrepancy uh, means that, that you're never quite fully getting the full fact check on whatever the, the wherever the disinformation was coming from, which Let's be honest, in this case, it was mostly on the right this election cycle. Um, so moving forward, I, you know, 
I still look for those creative uh, solutions that wouldn't violate uh, the First Amendment, but most likely it, it looks starts to look a lot like what we did in countering terrorist use of the internet, which is a heavy reliance on the private sector and enforcing their terms of service and uh, and you know doing what we saw them start to do towards the end. I kind of wonder if, I mean, this is not to blame them, but if somehow they had had a crystal ball and could see what was going to come and go back, say, at the beginning of 2020 and start labeling uh, things as untrue or not uh, you know, accurate, whether it was COVID uh, disinformation or election-related disinformation, would that have made a difference? Would that have changed the, um, the cycle of disinformation? Another question would be, uh, what Dominion Voting Systems has done has kind of forced, you know, the echo chamber on the right to, um, you know, not participate in in the the libelous lies about um, the election being stolen, at least not through Dominion Voting Systems. Are there other uh, times and, and spaces, if we look back in the last year, where a civil suit could have been brought um, that would have forced uh, you know, whether it's Fox or OAN or Newsmax to not uh, persist in some of the, the inaccuracies about whether it was COVID or, um, uh, you know, the election. It's, it, I, the, I, I tend, I, at least in terms of watching when people have clued in that they were deceived, the two, two things that I've seen break through um, one was related to QAnon and when Joe Biden was actually sworn in, you know, for, for some, it was the light switch effect of I've been lied to, uh, and they've had, they're now dealing with that and, but they no longer follow QAnon. Um, and the other was the dominion voting system that, that really kind of, when, when you have a news anchor have to read a statement over and over again, because they're scared, they're going to get sued and shut down, um, you know, there, there were quite a number of people that realized that, oh my gosh, we've been lied to. Now, there are plenty of people that have ignored that. They've come up with excuses for it and still believe the big lie. But, but we need more opportunities like that where you can break through the echo chamber and that requires credible voices. Um, and, it, and it requires, here's the other thing I, I got beat up on MSNBC, on, uh, well, really on Twitter after a hit yesterday on MSNBC. Um, it's it's really unpopular. Everybody's angry at the GOP. I totally get it. I'm angry too. I'm not I'm not a Republican anymore. But if you are looking at where, how do we fix everything that's broken here? How do we fix uh, the echo chamber problem? You have to find a safe space for the um, principled Republican to to come into and not feel like they're going to get beat up on. And to feel like, you know, they can raise their hand and say, I have concerns with this massive, you know, spending bill. While I recognize that there needs to be COVID relief, um, I, I am concerned about the size. How are we going to pay for it? Dot, dot, dot. Whatever their concern is, it's a valid concern. It doesn't mean that it doesn't need, that the bill doesn't need to be passed, but somebody raising that concern in good faith shouldn't be, they shouldn't be beat up on just because they have an R by their name. So somewhere in this, dynamic, part of the key to breaking the disinformation cycle is we have to create safe spaces for people to exit. And right now, 
it's, it's scary to leave your tribe um, because the other, the other side just wants to beat up on you and say, how did you not see, how could you not understand that Donald Trump was evil? How could you have voted for him? Um, so we, we're, we're going to, it takes an element of grace to allow uh, you know, people to exit the, in some ways, the cult-like atmosphere that they've been um, a part of. Uh, but we've got to create that space because we we've we have so many people that are believing this big lie, and it creates the potential of violence. And so, for that reason alone, it's not about um, you know fairness. It, it's it's not it's none of that. It's that we we want to live in a safe society. And right now, when you have forty five percent of the country believing a big lie, that's a lot of people that have the potential for violence. Law enforcement can't keep on top of that. So we got to find other ways to de-escalate the situation. Okay. So I have two more questions and I'm going to pose one to um, Livia and then I'll pose one to Elizabeth. Uh, we've got about seven or eight minutes here, but um, Olivia, this one follows up on, on, on what Elizabeth was just saying. Uh, and I'm just going to read the question to you because I'm sure it's going to sound familiar and 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 be one that I suspect you've discussed with your friends. But it says, my question is, what do moderate, parenthesis, rational Republicans stand for these days? I grew up in New England. Most of my relatives were Republicans. They were conservative in some ways, but they were rational. Think Elliot Richardson, Olympia Snow, Ed Brooke. I really don't want disaffected Republicans flooding into the Democratic Party and trying to turn it into, you know, some other version of itself. You know, it, it, it's it's consistent with what Elizabeth was saying. That you know, there 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 ought to be a Republican Party if, if there could be a rational one. Is that a you know crazy dream? <laughs> Well, it, it's certainly not a reality that we're living right now, um, obviously, uh, from what we've seen. But I think, like, I think it's important to try to make a difference within the Republican Party, if at all possible, because at the end of the day, there are going to be two parties, right? There's going to be, well, for now, there's always going to be, you know, two Two parties, and I and I said this before. We're always better when we actually have two parties that are functioning, where people are actually trying to develop real policy and come to the table and come up with solutions and work through things, rather than one functioning party. I would say, and another one that's, you know, too busy arguing over Dr. Seuss books and canceling like cancel culture or whatever that is, and with with no real basis in actually making a difference in the lives of the people they represent, I would say. And so I think rather than debating policy, we're debating just random culture wars at this point on the Republican side, which is really just detrimental. It's not governing, right? And so I think for moderate Republicans, like what is the definition of one? I think right now it's just being a rational human being, simple as that, sitting in the center you know, and and realizing that, you know, look, the Democrats are not the socialist enemy that they've been painted to be for them. Right. I mean, that is, I think, fueling even more division. So I think it's important. There's plenty of, I would say, center left Democrats that are probably in agreement with the center right Republicans. Right. And so there's a center space to be operating. And I think here that I think matters. And so I think for now, 
I don't know that I have a definite, I mean, I can go down the traditional Republican definition of a, you know, a fiscally conservative person who may be some, somewhat more socially liberal or the opposite direction, right? Someone who's more like socially, li- I mean, socially conservative, but still like more fiscally liberal. It could go either way, I think. But I think right now, I think it's critical. Uh, I think right now to me, a moderate Republican is anyone who's taking a stand against sort of the extremism and and mega. I would say that to me right now is what matters more because that is what is, I think, personally, really a detriment to the direction our country is going in. And you have a bunch of people here who are have decided to idolize one human being who's basically hijacked the Republican Party, you know, by movements that have existed before. I'm not going to deny that. They have been there but he's empowered them and emboldened them and someone who actually doesn't even care about the party. Right. That's the, that's the worst part of the whole thing. I mean, I had to literally, I had, to, I, I laughed pretty hard when I saw that Donald Trump was suing the RNC and didn't want them to fundraise. He wanted to fundraise. I'm like, yeah, he wants to put it in his pockets. Like he's, he wants to raise money for himself. He's broke. So, I mean, the jokes on them, any Republican official who really thought that this was the future of the Republican party and he was going to back them, he might, as soon as he pays all his debt off and pays his legal fees, maybe, and, you know, sells his mansion in Mar-a-Lago and finds a new way forward, as, as long as he can fundraise off of them, he will. But he's not going to back the party and those funds aren't going to anyone else. So, I mean, maybe that's just a depressing definition that I just gave you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it, sounds, it's, it sounds like, it sounds a, like a, a pretty realistic, realistic uh, report here. Report here. Elizabeth, final question. Do the DOJ and FBI have the necessary tools to fight domestic terrorism? So much emphasis since 2001 has been on Islamic terrorism that not enough, perhaps, attention has been paid to the insidious growth of domestic terrorism. Um, We talked about Trump giving them license. Do you think, and this is something we talked about the last time you were on, but do you think Congress needs to enact new laws or are there existing laws, as you mentioned earlier, that are just not being enforced? A um, couple of thoughts. One, uh, one of the most important things that we can do, but will take years to, to fully build out, is invest in prevention capabilities, which are, does not require new law. Um, it, we, this is building on programs and, and pilots that, that started actually in Bush and then really built out under Obama. And then in um, the Trump timeframe, we were able to study what worked, figure it out, and then you know, kind of codified it. And we've got budget, it's bipartisan, at least supported on the Hill. Um, and I have every reason to believe that the Biden team will um, continue forward with it. And the basic concept is we're trying to uh, create a set of standards and capabilities that our state and local partners can execute upon uh, to help individuals that are vulnerable to radicalization or who have radicalized and they're vulnerable to being mobilized to violence to intervene with them before they cross a criminal threshold. Um, the, the problem is just too massive at this point for law enforcement alone to handle. That was the case about five years ago before we're in the present environment. It is really the case now. Um, what Classic examples of the mom in El Paso called 911, said she was concerned that her son had guns and the mom, the 911 operator answered, Hey, it's, 
he's over 18, he's allowed to have guns. Sorry, I can't do anything about it. And if you had a prevention system where people were trained, that 911 operator could have referred the mom to a set of resources that would have perhaps been able to conduct a threat uh, assessment and put the um, attacker on a threat management plan um, or refer him to law enforcement for investigation if that was the appropriate course if he had already uh, plotted a crime and was, you know, in the in the stages of, of carrying it out. So um, prevention is really important. Um, if they wanted to pass a law, it would be really great for them to authorize the office. Um, that is relatively non-controversial with one asterisk. Some of the precursor problems, or sorry, precursor programs um, were, uh, in certain instances, when they were piloted by certain in certain locations, um, the Muslim community felt that they were being targeted. They felt like the programs were being designed for tips and leads for law enforcement. And because of that, um, they, uh, you have seen a few organizations come out against prevention. Um, what I think the Biden administration can do is sit back down, hear their concerns. I think we need to learn from the mistakes of our past. We were aware of those, and when we were designing this new prevention program, we took that into account and built in some safety mechanisms to make sure that this effort does not become a tips and leads effort for law enforcement. In fact, law enforcement is kind of, uh, they're a partner, but they're on the side. This is a, an effort that's more multidisciplinary, a lot of emphasis on mental health and social services uh, capabilities being brought to bear. Um, and, uh, anyway, so, so I think that's one of the, you know, it's not often talked about, it's relatively new in our suite of capabilities. It's being scaled up. Um, they, they have, uh, you know, staff in about 12 states right now trying to build out these capabilities with their state and local partners. We need to be in, uh, probably a hundred locations in the country in order to really build this out. And it takes time. It takes building a lot of trust and stitching together a lot of locally based resources that already pre-exist, but train, giving them the, the training that they would need to be able to participate in this effort. Um, so that's part one to, to the problem set. Part two is what most people talk about in terms of updating our laws to be able to better address domestic terrorism. I personally believe that yes, um, we should treat uh, the law should treat rather domestic terrorism on par with international terrorism. We had an instance last summer uh, where we had some Boogaloo boys uh, plotting to do some not great stuff. And in order for the FBI to wrap it up and, and uh, close the case and, and arrest them, they had to get creative. And uh, the Boogaloo boys just happened to have to meet with some Hamas guys. And because they met with Hamas, all of a sudden they are consorting with a foreign terrorist organization, which makes it much easier to charge and prosecute. Um, it shouldn't be that way. If they were planning to do something bad and that was of a terroristic nature, it shouldn't have to be that you have to find a way for them to try to consort with Hamas. Uh, so I think at a minimum, we should create a, a, a set of standards in the law that treat um, the, the act, the criminal act, the same, whether it is in the name of ISIS or the name of uh, neo-Nazis. Uh, beyond that, 
I think we have to have a commission. Um, if you're starting to talk about material support to terrorism, domestic terrorism organization designations, which might be helpful in certain contexts, but a lot of the groups that are active um, in our country are more movements than organizations. And so it gets kind of challenging to take the, the counterterrorism tools that were built for Al-Qaeda and apply it to a, a, the moment that we're in, which is much more about individuals stumbling upon content online, self-radicalizing, and then carrying out an attack. That doesn't mean that they're alone. They are absolutely influenced by movements and they are, especially post-January 6th, more uh, engaging with one another than they were previously. So there is some organizational aspect to it, but it's a very different uh, model than what when we passed the Patriot Act, what we were trying to go after. So, so I would love for there to be a robust conversation about it. It needs to be done carefully. We have a history of abuse of uh, power in this country, and I think we need to be serious about hearing through that before we come to recommendations about how uh, other further changes in the law that are necessary. Very helpful. Very helpful. Once again, to hear both of you, very nice of you to devote your uh, uh, precious time, a little bit of it, to join us, to join some of the guests, guests here, in, here the in the studio, studio and, and uh, 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 to uh, allow them to participate in the conversation. And uh, we hope you will join us again sometime soon. We admire the work that you're doing. Uh, and there's a lot to there's a lot to follow up on. Uh, so Come back soon, Elizabeth. Come back soon, Olivia. Come back soon, everybody who is listening. Uh, if you want to see and hear more about what we've got going on, go to the DSR Network, and uh, we will uh, at the DSRNetwork.com, and there's information on all our upcoming shows and on becoming a member there. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you again uh, very soon here at the DSR Network. Stay healthy, everybody.